Today's message is entitled God's Macroscope, and I'm pronouncing that correctly. God's Macroscope, okay? And you're familiar with what a microscope does and a, because it focuses and hones in on the tiny, the macroscope gets a really big picture, okay? We're going to look a little bit at the micro in the body of Christ, but my focus is what we learn about micro in relationships, we then apply on the macro level. And I hope by the end of the message, you'll understand even what I'm talking about. My wife and I are so very different. I'm going to share a story with you, and it's going to reveal a little bit of my backside, (laughs) but... It is something I had to learn how to deal with because it was a difference that the two of us shared. About three months after she and I had been dating, recording, she was, she's up in uh, Newark, Delaware, so northern Delaware, but her home is in Pembroke Pines in South Florida. So she's flying back there. I'm taking her to the airport. And on the way there, I come up with a brilliant idea. I say, how about if we pray for one another? And... You share with me five things that you would like to see God change in me, and I'll share with you five things that I would like to see God change in you. (laughs) Well, you don't think that was a great idea? (laughs) Well, I didn't think so at the time. I didn't. What's wrong with this? And my my wife-to-be's countenance just fell. And I began to realize just how different she was than I am. I was. God has said some of these things in differences in my wife and I, they're kind of a reflection of our backside. It is something good that God does in us, but it creates a backside that by Christ's character, then we're able to mend. He's able to mend that in us. Now, so as you can see, I had a tendency to focus on the negative and then move to the positive. And my wife has the tendency to focus on the positive and be so excited about that and then move to the negative, move to the problems. I tend to be a problem solver. I tend to look at the tree and she tends to look at the forest. Now, both of us can do the opposite. She can see the forest. And actually, for example, when she helped head up the Finish Well Conference, That is a micro-macro leadership, and she did an amazing job with that. She got into the micro with helping people and making sure they did what, you know, they had said they they were going to be doing, but then she was able to see and lead on the micro and the macro. Um, And so she can can be uh, very positive, and I realized because of my problem-solving abilities, <laughs> I tended to focus on the negative. And God had to begin to change me in that. So everything that my kids ever drew, even when they were one or two years old, ended up on a refrigerator. Because she looked at it and she was, that is amazing. And I'm struggling, what is it? And, but I know I shouldn't say that. So, you know, we... Put it up there, and one day maybe I'll find out, figure out what it is. 
but she just loved it. And this is her ability and skill, and she's just very different than me in this. She's also an extrovert. I tend to be an introvert. She tends to be people-oriented. I tend to be task-oriented, though she can be task-oriented, and I can be people-oriented. But we have a tendency, a proclivity towards her being people-oriented, me being task-oriented, okay? Um, she's spontaneous. I'm more calculated. I'm more planned. I love lists. Praise God for telephones, okay? I have a day timer, but I can't carry my day timer around with me everywhere. So I have about 20, no lie, 20 uh, alarms that go off during the course of the week for appointments to get me up in the morning. Um, I, I probably need to put one on here to get to bed at night, but yeah, I, I've got an alarm for everything. And I, I, can, I, I can have a tendency to miss a meeting if I forget to set that alarm. But this is me. And so I love lists. Meredith, to be honest, she hates lists. They're boring, okay? What's a little check mark? Okay, for me, it gives a sense of accomplishment. I did something, and for her, it's like, okay, well, I, there's 20 things I need to get done, so you know, whatever. So for her she, she, and I, we're very different. How do we, and this is the question I had to ask, how do we make this future marriage, and once we got married, how do we make it work? And I'm going to tell you this right now. God gave you the spouse that you have, and he has crafted him or her to be able to complement you. And hopefully in the midst of that, they're also going to complement you. Okay? You understand the difference. My wife complimented me. But he, here's what I did. She's different than me. And, and you know what? I was so ignorant. The word stupid comes to mind, but I'm not supposed to use that word. But I, I was so ignorant that I thought I needed to help her become more like me. Because after all, this is the way we're supposed to be, right? Now, here's why I'm saying this is because we have this tendency to see differences amongst ourselves. And many times we think those differences are wrong. Now, I want you to test this. Next time you notice something or something in someone that's different than you, how does it make you feel emotionally? What's your emotional response? Is it positive or is it negative? I'm just telling you that human nature is to view difference negatively. But in the body of Christ, that can't be. Because, and then there's many reasons. Next week, we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts, and there's differences there that we learn to enjoy. There's differences in my wife that I needed to learn to enjoy. They weren't wrong. Now, maybe for her and I, some of those differences were our backside, backside to a positive thing, and God did need to change that. We can also, because of these differences, we can feel threatened. You're different than me, and we can feel as if maybe that difference is either worse or better, but it can threaten us. We tend to be drawn to people who are like us. I've learned early on in leadership, man, if you want to do well as a leader, you cannot afford to surround yourself by people who are like you. 
you need to surround yourself by people who are different than you. And this was an invaluable discovery in my marriage. Now, I'm sharing this with you because we're talking about unity today. One of the earmarks of a healthy church is its ability to be unified. And we're going to look at it initially from the micro level, and we're going to learn just a few things. And there's so much, church, that we can learn. But we need to then apply that on the macro level so that the body of Christ may be unified, and we're going to discover why this is even so important. But when we do this, you are going to encounter people who are different than you. Some of them are vastly different than you. Learn to embrace them. Yes, some of those differences are a reflection of their faults. We learn to love and embrace because love covers over a multitude of sins. We're going to look at a passage that speaks to this in just a moment. So, we focus then not on our differences. That's not how I learned to get along with my wife. I did learn to appreciate them and value them, but I focused on our similarities. I focused on our commonness, our common vision. And, and, so, we, and so that was the only way that we could make our marriage survive, appreciate the differences, and focus on the similarities as we moved forward. I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to take a moment. We're going to look at this from a micro level right now. That means one-on-one. How do we get along together? Ephesians 4 verse 1. I'm just going to read three verses. That's all I'm going to do. Ready? As a prisoner for the Lord then, so Paul is in prison while he's writing this letter, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What is the subject here? He's kind of moving on a little bit from chapter 3 and the dispensation of God's grace. Right now, he is talking about how we are called to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received. Now understand this calling is not the gift set God has given me and anointed me by his spirit to walk in. That's not what he's talking about here. What he is talking about, if you look at verse 4, he says, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's a general call that goes out to the world. That call is the gospel. Some respond and now enter into the family of God, which is, what, which is the subject that he just touched on in chapter 3. <clears throat> so they are called to this hope by the gospel in Christ Jesus. They have this amazing inheritance. They are a family, and that is the word that's used, is it, in verse 16? Uh, let me just double-check the, the verse there, verse 14 and 15, from which the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. We are a family. We have this one calling as a family, this inheritance. So I want to ask you this. In view of us living in a way that lives up to that calling, what is the thing that you would expect him to touch on? Just think about it for a moment. Living worthy of this call of God to to follow him, this one hope in Jesus Christ. What's he going to say next? This is what he says. First of all, get over yourself. 
He says it a little differently. He says, be humble and gentle. Be humble. Here's why he would start off with that. Because as I learned to relate with my wife, I had to start there. I had to say, okay, God, there's friction here because of these differences, the way we looked at things, the way we responded to things. I, 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 I came to this conclusion, my wife is from Venus and I am from Mars. Well, I guess that's the name of a book. But we were just so different. And I had to realize, God, how is this, this going to work? Did I marry the right woman? Now, don't look at me like you've never married couples. Don't look at me like you've never asked that question. Of course you have. Every one of us, did I marry the right person? And, and you know what? It is, there are times in which I even said, oh my goodness, I so blew it, she's going to want to divorce me. She, no, she, she would not do that because she loves Jesus too much and hopefully me enough. But the truth is, that's where marriage, that's what differences can, can do. And the sparks begin to fly, okay? And they flew a lot in our marriage, especially in the beginning as we were learning this concept of differences. Well, here's what I had to do. Mike, be humble. Probably not the best idea as I am saying goodbye to her for about three months let me point out five things in your life that you need to change. Not a good idea. Men, don't ever do that, okay? Just don't do that. It does not foster this connection, and it is so negative. Now, some of you were really good, but I think I only heard women laughing when I first mentioned it, and no men. The truth is, guys, this is what we need to do. We need to focus on how God needs to change us, ladies as well. We're different. God, what, how do I need to change? What's my backside that is rubbing my wife raw? It is such an irritation. And I had a list, just to be honest with you. Not of her, but of me. So the first thing you need to do is you need to be humble. Where do I need to change? Because this relationship is, has so much friction in it. So the first step that Paul gets to when he's telling the Ephesians to live to this amazing call of God, this one hope that we have in Jesus Christ, is be humble. Be willing to recognize that you need to be teachable and learn. And you need to change. Number two, be gentle. Being gentle He's not talking necessarily about being gentle with yourself. Who do you think he's talking about? Being gentle with others. So the very next thing he says is be patient. Let me just tell you right now, that can be hard to do. Be patient with one another. They're not just going to be different than you. They may actually offend you. They may actually say things that deeply hurt you. How do you work past those? Be patient. That's the first step. Be patient. Bearing with one another. In love. See, church, this is where unity gets grounded in. It must be grounded. In your marriage, in your family, one-on-one, -on -one, this is what needs to happen. Where do I need to change? And how do I bear with and love and extend patience and move forward with their flaws? How do I do this? I got to be humble. And when I view others, I have to be gentle. Don't be a bull in a china shop. You know what I'm talking about. Be gentle. 
be kind, be compassionate, bear with one another. And then he says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Peace is our goal. Of everything that Paul could have touched on concerning living up to that call of God in our lives, he touched on unity between one another. In Philippians 4.2, he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. These were godly women. I don't know the problem that they encountered, but there was disunity. They were not like-minded. And that's the Greek word that he tells them. Not just to agree, okay, whatever you say, but be like-minded. Think more alike. Stop focusing on all the differences. Focus on the similarities. Focus on what you have in Christ together. <clears throat> Romans 12, 18. <clears throat> Excuse me, my allergies have been kicking in this morning for some reason. <clears throat> so just, <clears throat> excuse me, bear with me a bit. But he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with, with who, church? With, just with your spouse, just with your family, with everyone. This includes unbelievers, even. As far as it depends on you, as much as you can, make it your goal to live in peace. Seek reconciliation where there's division. Now, can I be honest with you? There are times in which we will try to be reconciled. And we're going to fail. And we'll try and try and we'll fail and, it, and it's not going to work. And many times it's because the other person, they're, they're too wounded. Whatever the reason, they do not want reconciliation. That is not a godly quality. But sometimes, church, in our hurts, we are led by our emotions. Even when we shouldn't, but we are. Come on, that's just the bare truth. And our emotions lead us. And sometimes that makes it difficult, if not impossible at times, to be reconciled. But that should be our goal, reconciliation. Reconciliation is a conversation. You can't just assume. You can't just pray it will happen. You have to do something about it. Praying for God's grace, God's love, being humble, being patient, bearing with one another in love. But everything in us, must scream unity. Now, I want to now j just with that con those co that concept of unity. I want now to take that heart that I've just been speaking to that perspective, and I want us to apply it on the macro level. Let me tell you why. Turn with me, if you would, to John seventeen. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is what Jesus is praying right before he goes to the cross. The evening that he is betrayed and the evening that he is arrested and sentenced to the cross, he prays this prayer to his heavenly Father for you and me, not just for those that, he, that were with him, the 12, but he prays it now for everyone who would come to Christ through them. So that's going to be you and me. This is what Jesus prayed for you. I'm going to skip down to verse 22. I have given them glory 
that I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. But you may have noticed I changed a few words in there, at least maybe according to your Bible. I'm reading from the NIV, so if you have the NIV, that's why it sounded differently. I purposely chose them. There are six, excuse me, there's a word here in the Greek, same word, used six times, and it means that or so that or in order to, or in order that. That's how it's translated. The NIV translates it differently throughout this passage from verses 20 through verse 23, six times I read to you just two of those, or three of, yeah, two of those. Because I want you to see, when he says, especially in verse 23, look at this, in them, excuse me, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. What is the big deal about complete unity? And understand, this complete unity is thorough unity. This isn't just some interpretive translation. This is a literal translation. It's not just unity. It is complete, thorough unity. You're in me and I am in them so that they can be brought to this complete unity. Unity here and Christ to us, so that amongst them they can have complete unity. What is the big deal about this? This is what he says. He says that they may be brought to complete unity so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's how crucial unity in the body of Christ is. Now, understand, he's not just talking about amongst, you know, one-on-one. He's talking on the macro level here. Your people, I'm praying for you guys. And not just Powerline Church, but he's saying, I'm praying for everyone who would come to know me through this gospel, that they may be brought to complete unity. And the big deal about this is by the world looking on and seeing in the body of Christ complete unity, not focusing on the differences and feeling threatened by them, but focusing on the similarities and what we have in common in Christ, when the world looks on and sees the body of Christ in complete unity, two things are going to happen. The world will know that the Father sent the Son. That is a theological truth. In Acts chapter 2, the Jews wrestled with that. They did not believe that the Father sent Jesus. They didn't believe it. They thought Jesus was a cult leader. They thought Jesus was a rabble-rouser leading a rebellion, both spiritually and perhaps politically, so they put him to death as a result of this. His following was getting too big. It was dangerous. But here's what happened after Pentecost. There was such an amazing change in them. They had unity. They had, do you remember the word? Koinonia. 
Koinonia comes from the Greek word koine or koinos, meaning common. There was tremendous commonness among them. If my wife were there and I were there, it would still apply to us. As different as we are, nope, between Mike and Meredith, there is a commonness. There's a sharedness amongst them. And people looked on. And by the way they lived and by all that God's grace was doing in their midst, the Jews who had crucified Jesus seven weeks prior looked on and they said, oh my goodness, there is something authentic and genuine and real here. And they began to investigate. This is just the best way I can explain it. The Christians began to find favor with their fellow Jews who had been their enemies, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is what he is talking about. The Jews looked on, they saw the complete unity, and they were one to the faith. They realized the Father really did send Jesus. There was an authenticity amongst the body of Christ. And he says that they will know that you have loved them. Because God loved my wife and I so much, he said, you know what? I'm not going to allow this marriage to get worse and worse. I'm going to help them. I'm going to give them grace. I'm going to teach them how to live in harmony, as different as they are. And that is what God is wanting to do one-on-one in a, any local church, but then beyond that, to the city church, the city level. And even beyond that, city to city, worldwide, global, complete unity. There's too much at stake here. Can I tell you, back in the 80s, <clears throat> when Argentina was at war with England over the Falkland Islands, and they lost, it humbled that nation. The Falkland Islands were just off their coast. England had to travel how many thousands of miles to reclaim the Falkland Islands technically belonged to them. And so for them, the Argentinians, they were humbled. They lost that war in the 80s, and it humbled them. And God began to move in their midst, and millions, church, millions of Argentinians came to faith in Jesus Christ. There was an awakening in Argentina that they had never seen or experienced before. One of the main things, there were six things that, there was a lot of things, but six things that God did very specifically, many of them had to do with unity. Unity amongst the pastors and the churches. Why? Right here. God, bring them to complete unity so the world will know that you sent me. That is a message, a life message screaming out the, the truth that Jesus is real. He is the son of God and he lives in me. And that is the only way that we can live with one another in complete unity. And the world looks on. And you know, church, they should be amazed at the unity that they see in the body of Christ. They should be. Are they? Well, I mentioned to you that 
part of this is this koinonia, this commonness, this sharedness of life, of the Spirit of God in us. Complete unity does not mean that we embrace other religions. It does not mean that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what does light have to do with darkness? What does God have to do with Belial, a name for Satan? Nothing. There's nothing in common. There's nothing in common I have with other religions except I have a heart to that they would see truth, so I'm going to love them. There is no reason why I should uh, attack or, or put them down. I want to show them Jesus. That, that doesn't mean that my heart is grieved that they are following a false prophet, and that will offend them. And, and I, I will stand by the truth, but I'm not going to go out of my way to offend them but I will stand by the truth. And hopefully they will see Jesus in me. And, and Muslims respect Jesus. I want them to see who Jesus really is, though. And I think I can do that rather kindly. But I will need to speak truth. Because what does light have to do with darkness? The unity, then, is over the gospel. The unity is what we then have in common with one another, which is light, which is truth, which is Jesus Christ. Our problem is that, especially amongst churches, we have a tendency to see the differences and not the commonness, the sharedness that we have in Jesus. Did you realize that even though in the first century they didn't have denominations, they thought differently than one another? If you don't believe me, my question to you is, then why did Paul write Romans 14? Romans 14, if you want to look at it or write it down and look at it later, Romans 14 has to do with what's commonly called disputable matters. Why? Because guess what, church? Church members, fellow Christians, disputed with one another about things like sacrifices, about things like what is clean and unclean food? About things like wine, alcohol. About things like what they should eat and what they shouldn't. Some chose to be vegetarians because that's how God initially created Adam and Eve. Though after the flood, God said, I'm going to give you the animals to eat as well. Some choose to live in Genesis 1, others choose to live in Genesis 9. I am a Genesis 9 person, okay? Just so you know, I like my meat medium rare. But there are some people who have very strong convictions. I don't eat meat. So they just eat lamb, right? No, I'm just kidding. So the truth, so the, but the truth, sorry, that was a line from my big fat Greek, what you write. And so, but the truth is, there were disputings amongst them. Look at Acts chapter 20. And you can kind of feel the tension between James and Paul. I'm not going to suggest that James, I'm not going to suggest that James had everything together theologically. But here's what I will tell you. Everything that we find in the book of James is absolutely theologically correct. 
It's just that God didn't have James write the treatise on our view of the law. And we kind of see a little bit of that coming out in Acts 20. He had Paul do it. It's not that James didn't touch on the law, but everywhere he touched on the law, that's where he had it right. And I'm only mentioning this to you because sometimes we think that there was, there was no divisions among them. There was no potential for divisions. Everybody thought alike. That's not true at all, especially between Jews and Greeks, but beyond that. So here's my point. If you were to go to Acts chapter 20, you're going to find something interesting. Acts chapter 20, <clears throat> Paul had been kicked out of the, the city of Ephesus, but he is swinging by there. He does not, for a number of reasons, he does not want to go to Ephesus, so he goes to a place called Miletus. Miletus is 30 or more miles from Ephesus. He asks all of the elders to come to him. Now, I'm going to go back to something I mentioned two weeks ago, the term ecclesia, as it's used in the book of Acts. I do not see it even one time being used to refer to the local church. Luke uses it to refer to the city church. Now, it's possible that maybe there was one local church in a city, but for the most part, those churches were house churches. Not exclusively, but for the most part, they were, and we have plenty of evidence for this. Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus. A church met in their home. Can I assure you that Ephesus was a place in which not only did everyone in Asia hear the gospel because of Paul's ministry there, but I would venture to say the church in Ephesus was huge. The church in Rome was huge. We know the church in Jerusalem was huge. It was over 5,000. Were they all just one local church? Of course not. So what I'm talking about is when Paul calls these elders, he's calling them, I would suggest to you, from numerous local churches. And they all come. I don't know how many, but they all come. They're inconvenienced, short notice. They get there and the word goes out. Hey, come. Well, I've got harvest time here. I'll be there in a week. You'll miss it. They had to lay down their lives, I mean, their schedules, and they, they went. They traveled over 30 miles. This was important. Paul called all of them together to encourage them and to caution them about the future. I'll let you read about those in Acts 20. And when Paul left, they all wept over one another. Can you imagine if a call went out to the city of Sanford. All the elders, come. Let's converge on the Sanford Convention Center. How many excuses there would be? Number one, who are you to call such a meeting? Okay. But I'm so busy. Do you understand the life of a pastor and you want me to be there in just like two days? What about our differences? Probably the first thing that comes up, what about our differences? We're some, from so many denominations. We think so differently. 
I'm going to suggest to you that so did the first century church in many ways. They were not denominations, but in so many ways they thought differently. But we have evidence here they still came. They were still connected because of the koinonia. They looked past their differences. They focused on what they had in common, their similarities. And on the macro level, they were unified. And it wasn't just because there was one denomination. Can we, many people think that there's so much unity in the New Testament church because they didn't have denominations, but let's get real. Okay, there are denominations. Does that mean we can't be unified? Does that mean we have to continually focus on our differences, our commonnesses in Jesus Christ? That's what we choose to focus on. When we get to heaven, God's not going to ask us what our denomination was. He's going to ask us, who do you identify with? Do you identify with my son or do you identify with the world? That's all he's going to want to know, who you identified with. It's either Jesus or not Jesus. It's not whether you were Presbyterian, Baptist, or non-denominational. Because that can be a kind of like a denomination as well, church. Come on. You're, den- you're a non-denominational denomination. Whatever. This needs to be our focus, church. Mm. we must be unified. I was told a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it was a, it's a really good story and really applies here. A man flying in an airplane flew over Kansas and he looked at all the different ranches fly, flying obviously close to the ground. Cole, I don't know how close to the ground you have to be to be able to see this, but there were fences demarcating the boundaries of all of the ranches. And when he flew over during the winter time, he could see the, the huge ranches and how strong and long and big their, their fences were. He came back several months during harvest time, and as the wheat was springing up high into the air, the, it was so full of of wheat seeds and fruit that it it caused them to bend, so much so they bent over the fences. And this time when he flew over, he could see no fences. They were still there, but he could see no fences. The only thing he could see was the harvest. This is our commonness. If a Paul came to Sanford and he said, I need us to convene, it is too urgent, Would all the elders, would all the pastors come? Man, I hope so. Man, I hope so. On this macro level, this is something that in the past year, God has been laying on my heart. It was there 10 years ago. I got super busy with the business and with church and a number of things that had me step back for too long from the Sanford Ministers Fellowship, which has actually changed its name. I have certain goals now. One of those goals is there is a monthly meeting. And I'm letting you know so that this is not something that I'm just preaching to you. It's something I want to walk out. And I'm going to probably do it imperfectly, but I'm going to do as much, as hard as I can, praying along the way. And you're going to pray for me, right, church? Just shake your head. Yes, you are. Thank you. And so you know what? Every, at Chick-fil-A in Sanford, once a month, on the first Thursday of the month, about one to two dozen pastors convene, and we fellowship with one another. And it changes from month to month. So if you were to ask me, what do you do? I would say, well, it's different. But we get to know, with, we get to know, for, we get to know one another. We pray for one another. 
we koinonia, we have fellowship with one another. Once a week, God has laid this on my heart that I'm to get together with another pastor in the Sanford Lake Mary area. As I mentioned to you, the pastor of Scent Church, I'm getting together with him this Tuesday morning. And my goal is I want to know about his life, his family, his church. I want to know at least two things, that I can be praying for him and that as a church we can be praying for them. I want to focus on how we are similar and the commonness that we have in Christ, which is like 99 plus percent of what we believe, so you know. That's how much we have in, tr- in common church. I don't care if you're Calvinist or Arminian, you still have 99% of what you believe in common. It's just that we have this tendency to focus on the 1%. Is it because we feel threatened by one another? So I have a desire to be able to do that once a week and get together with the church, and on Sunday morning be able to pray for that church, get together with a pastor. There's an opportunity I want to share with you that's recently come up. I don't know what my final decision is. I'm going to tell you how I responded initially. But Safe Harbor is going through a difficult time. I'm not going to get into the specifics of it right now. But their, their numbers are way down. All of this is precipitated because of COVID. A number of cheap people have left the church. They have an interim pastor. His name's Franklin. Pray for Franklin. I met him before I spoke with him this past week because we, I wanted to reach out concerning graduation. June 12th, we're going to be having our graduation um, at their church, okay? He said, wow, Mike, you're not going to believe this, but we're going through something as a church, and the, I'm not going to get into any more details than this, but the outgoing eldership asked, can you form a board of elders that would consist of the one elder at this church and three or four local pastors. And can you use that board, they gave a name to it, to help Safe Harbor walk through this difficult time? I asked, he said, Mike, the reason why I'm saying this is I was actually thinking about and writing down names as you spoke. And as soon as you identified yourself, the Lord said, ask him. And so, Mike, I'd like to ask you if you would like to be a part of that board. I asked for the amount of commitment. I asked for what we're going to do. And it is basically everything from ground zero to help them raise up a board, an eldership. And we're just going to see. Their, their goal is to do it in one year. We'll see. I said, Franklin, I'm going to tell you right now that that is what I want to do. I just don't know for sure. And I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to share it with my wife. We're going to pray, but I'll let you know by this coming Tuesday. I'm sharing that with you because can you imagine if other churches did this whenever they're going through a hard time? Instead of just reaching out to their denomination, reach out to local pastors who are probably going to know them better, probably, and say, can you help us? Even though they think differently. Wow. We we, we We want your wisdom. We want to tap into that. I don't know how much I have to offer. I'll do my best. But if that's what God chose me to do on Tuesday, I'll let him know. And I'm sharing this with you because, church, as as the city of Sanford and Lake Mary moves forward, these are just some of the things that God, I believe, is wanting to do in building his church and building this macro-level unity. I'm going to just close in prayer. Because this type of unity is what needs to take place 
on the micro level between one another, between you and me and between each other, between husband and wife and parent and child. But it needs to take place on the macro level too. Because church, if it does not, if it does not, Jesus' church is doomed. And can I tell you, in view of what I preached on last week, it is not. It is not. God's kingdom is going to come. His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amazing things are going to come. And my prayer is, God, let it be in this generation. But it's going to take people who are like-minded, who don't cross their T's and dot their I's on every theological issue, but who are able to look beyond that and embrace one another and love each other because apart from complete unity, this world will die in its sins. And I cannot stand that, and I hope you can't either. Complete unity. Loving each other. Looking past the differences to all the koinonia that we have with one another. So, Father, I just ask you, give us your grace to be able to do this. Give us your grace to be able to look past our differences, even husbands and wives, and embrace Jesus in a siege. And Father, where there is division in any of our hearts between anyone, supernaturally, step into that relationship and heal it and give us humility and give us patience, bearing with each other in love. Oh, God, bring your spirit of unity through the bond of peace. Here at home, throughout this world, God, so that your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, can you say that with me? Amen. Amen. Amen.